0: Welcome to Mission Impact, the podcast for progressive nonprofit leaders who want to build a better world without becoming a martyr to the cause. I'm Carol Hamilton, your host and nonprofit consultant. Welcome Ariel Goodman, Jenny Hagland, and Jessica Shrikantia to the podcast. Ariel, Jenny, and Jessica are a team of colleagues who have been working together for the past six months to discover how they might be of service as a collective. Their work exists in cultivating the spaces between, such as in between people during the times of transition and not knowing, spaces within our own selves, or the connective tissue of complex systems. Together, they explore what is possible in and from wholeness. They are committed to transforming themselves into alignment with life so that they can support this work in the broader world, inclusive of and beyond their individual selves. Their areas of expertise include navigating uncharted terrain in times of uncertainty, helping systems see and sense themselves, and practicing sacred relationships with team and stakeholder groups. My conversation with Jenny, Jessica, and Ariel gets a bit philosophical, and Ariel helps ground our conversation in the here and now and the personal. We consider what this very uncertain moment in history could mean for the systems that we live in and take for granted. We can no longer rely on the map that we have relied on, so we have to really focus our collective ability to name our current landscape. We reflect on how, in our culture, we are born into a collectively traumatized culture that has a domination logic built into its systems, and at the same time, how just focusing on a systemic analysis can dis- divorce ourselves from our part in the system as if it exists outside of us, instead of us existing within these systems. I hope you find it as engaging and insight provoking as I did. Well, welcome, Ariel, Jessica and Jenny to the podcast. I'm very excited for today's uh, conversation. I'm really curious uh, just to get started and to give people some context. What brought each of you to this work? Uh, How did you guys come to start working together in the way that you are?
1: I'd be happy to speak in a little bit of our origin story, and then I'm going to invite Jenny and Jessica to kind of feed forward with me. I had started taking ULAB course through um, the Presencing Institute at MIT, and one of the questions that they ask is, who are your partners in the work? A lot of Theory U is based in awareness-based systems change and thinking, centering relationships in everything we do. And I had met uh, Jessica synchronistically through an organization that I was employed for, and I had met Jenny at a social justice event. And for some reason, in sitting with this question of, what is my work? aligned to life, who are my partners in this work, I kept on thinking of these two humans. And it was kind of like the universe was asking me to pay attention. So I invited them to come together and start kind of sensing into what is our
2: relationship and what is our shared work. As Arielle mentioned, she was the connector for me to meet Jenny and vice versa. And uh, just one other piece I'll add is the synchronicity of Arielle and I actually emailed each other at such exactly the same moment about working together that Ariel initially thought her email had bounced back to her. <laughs>
3: <laughs> That's awesome. I don't remember if I've heard that part of the story. That's great. And the one thing I would add is that I feel like the, the when we first came together, I think one of the things I'm learning to do is to trust the intelligence in my body and everything in my body said, these are people that I can learn from. These are people that I can heal with. These are people that are already bringing out like my most authentic self. And like noticing that experience in myself and thinking like, absolutely, yes, this is what I want more of.
0: Awesome, thank you. So you guys say that part of your expertise includes navigating uncharted terrain in times of uncertainty. And the truth is, of course, we never know what the future will hold and we're always in the midst of uncertainty. Yet, I think we often are kind of lulled into the idea that we kind of live in this illusion that we have control and we can plan and predict. And as a country and even the world, we certainly are in the midst of a time when uncertainty is just impossible to ignore. How are you seeing this particular moment? And what do you see maybe emerging?
2: I think what you said about uncertainty being hard to ignore is very, very true. And it's even felt to me that we're almost living in a moment with no future, in the sense that everything feels like it can change immediately. And so from this place it actually is forcing all of us to be living in this here now and one of the things that otto sharma talks about is that the and this comes from the yogis and and enlightened people uh, talk about this that the present moment is actually a point that has both the past and the future in it that the the past you can and you can respond in two ways you can respond by opening into the past and bringing the past into the present and the future or you can respond by, by integrating oneself and, and integrating into this present moment and opening into this future that is actually also here now and, and wanting to emerge.
0: Other thoughts on uh, what you see emerging currently?
3: So the first thing I want to say is navigating sort of the willingness to navigate this uncharted terrain is more of a commitment to practice than it is an area of expertise. None of us have been here before. And so I don't know that any of us can, can claim a, a traditional definition of expertise, meaning we sort of know what we need to do or how to do it. However, what I think that may be emerging in this moment and that, that we are embracing is an invitation to be in relationship with each other and ask ourselves different kinds of questions. So we've all heard that, you know, we move in the direction of our questions. Energy follows attention and all that good stuff. And I think we really believe that. And so the moment or what's emerging in this moment, this invitation to ask ourselves different kinds of questions for us really centers a lot In drawing our attention to the source, the place from which we are doing our work and the place from which we are seeing the landscape around us, right? So we can no longer rely on the map, but we can rely, what we can rely on, I think, is our collective ability to see and sense what is the landscape that we are in, in a given moment, and then from that place of awareness together to sense into how we can move, how we can collectively move, live within that landscape and within the reality of what it is.
1: I'll just add, I think that there's really a level of intimacy around the experience of navigating the unknown right now that is intelligent. That the habituated responses and patterns that are fundamental to us being humans in what we do with uncertainty, bringing awareness and seeing what comes up in us, and then from a place of consciousness and choice, choosing to move in a different direction. And what's wild is that intimate experience of something that's just so innate or so normal actually allows us as human beings to sense and see the systems that we exist in today, and ask questions. How do those systems serve us? How are they harming us? Are they aligned to all of life and how we are deeply interconnected? And I think that there is so much exceptional learning that brings our personal intimate experience to to something that can't always be felt and experienced or sometimes invisible. So it feels like a very, very important time in this moment in history and
0: the present, really. Can you give me an example to to ground that and just yeah just more specificity and concreteness?:
1: Sure. Whether that's income, employment, looking at the rates of um, unemployment right now. So tomorrow morning, I'm about to drive twelve hours to pick up my mom and grandma, who have lived in Chicago their whole lives, and they're about to relocate to Texas to be closer to my sister who's about to have her first baby. My grandma is in her eighties. If we look at what's happening with the pandemic right now, we are seeing a surge of COVID cases in Houston where she's about to relocate. What do I notice in myself? What do I notice in my family in navigating something that I don't have control over? Wanting to know answers, wanting to know that I'm making the right decision, wanting to be able to control this journey that is about to happen. And then inviting myself to sit with the discomfort of not knowing and that I don't have control over these things and what that experience is like. And the pain or fear or sadness and also love and passion and like fight or resilience, all of those things, holding all of that complexity and sitting with that and not knowing and feeling that in my body.
0: You, you talked about the habituated patterns and six months ago, you would have packed up for that trip. It probably would have been about logistics. Did I remember my charger to make sure that I can access the GPS to get me to Chicago? And, and you know, did I bring enough clothes? Where are we going to stay along the way? And then, you know, a simple, it seems like something relatively simple then in this time, just it amplifies in terms of all of the things that uh, are concerns. And I was thinking just a simple thing like watching a movie where a ton of people are walking down the street together suddenly is an uncommon thing. You know, all of those things that we took for granted four months ago. And then with the with the protests going on, you know, I, I guess my hope, my hope is that there's a waking up and more people, more white people are stepping into educating themselves, you know, and and looking at how systems have been benefiting them. And hurting them also, you know. How can how can we live into something different? How can we start dismantling those systems? It's it's all there.
3: It is all there. And I, I just I want to acknowledge that in in this circle right now, the four of us are women who walk in the skin of white bodies. And so just to acknowledge that that is is the voice from which I am speaking in this moment. But something you said really. Struck me. You said, you know, the hope that that we will continue to educate ourselves and sort of acknowledge the ways in which we have benefited from the systems of oppression. And and I want to bring in here that one of my commitments and one of my invitations to all of us is that we would also together, in both individually and collectively, actually commit to healing ourselves and the work of healing. Because uh, systems of oppression had traumatizing impacts on all of us in very different ways. However, um, the ways in which we've all been born into a collectively trauma- traumatized uh, culture are being illuminated <laughs> in a deep way. And so I, I want to invite all of us for a moment, maybe to just speak into what this might, might mean for us, because I'm I'm really seeing also that what is emerging in this moment is an opportunity for us to start to integrate and work at the intersection of healing, individual and collective healing, and social justice and and social change, right? Because I'm not sure that these things can actually be pulled apart. Part. And that's a very different way of understanding the ecosystem than it than it was for me in the past. So I'm curious, Jessica and Ariel, and also you too, Carol. Like, what do you? What comes up for you when you hear this? Like, what is our? What are we learning about this? I think we're really just starting to understand, especially this piece on on
1: collective trauma. Jenny mentioned earlier um, in the conversation that a lot of our work is talking about the source from which we operate from. One of the phrases that comes that is used a lot by Otto Scharmer and the Presencing Institute team in Theory U is the quality of an intervention is dependent on the interior condition of the intervener. So the notion that the blind spots or the shadows that I hold within myself, we then I will see in the work that I do externally out into the world, in my relationships and organizations and the systems. So the question I'm holding, you know, is if we are individually and collectively birthing something new, Where do we want that place to come from? What are those nutrients? What are those seeds? But really, I'm thinking about wholeness as a line to life. And if there isn't an integration of these different pieces that we've left back in the past or harm that we've stuck in a corner, we're going to see that reproducing itself in the future. So thinking about where do we want to operate from? What do we want to hold in ourselves to then birth and midwife this new system that is in service to
2: all of life? and this connection of our, our own interconnectedness that we are actually we're not separate is i think also becoming ever more apparent in this moment and on the one hand the the need to do our own healing to get to the place where we can engage in ways that are that are actually contributing positively and at the same time the need to to from that place To hear all the different voices, especially the voices that have been marginalized, because this racism and white supremacy are fueled by attentional blindness. And so, this is a moment where the system is actually, through video and all kinds of other means, that we are all, we are, we are, the realities of marginalized peoples in this society are being brought in to the reality of everyone's everyday life. And that is an incredible opportunity. And, those, and the, the people who are experiencing the structural violence of the system are the experts on it. And they're the ones who really carry wisdom of alternatives. In my family and genealogy through so much, the, the totality of the colonization in identifying with the system, that I have I have lost and need and in, have been in a process of rebuilding. So the alternatives and the possibilities we need to really um, hear and 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 transform the relationships of power from power over to power with and 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 transform the attentional blind spots into truly inclusive honoring and listening and the, the dignity and sacredness of all all life, and using those opportunities to rebuild the relationships in how we exist. So our food systems, the sanitation systems, all these systems that materially support our existence on the planet, that those need to be re, re-woven on the basis of sacred relationship, not exploitative relationship.
0: I want to give you an amen. <laughs> mm-hmm. Something that you said, Jenny, struck me that the notion of bringing together working towards justice and healing, one of the things that I've appreciated from the inception of the Black Lives Matter movement and the movement for Black lives, and even before the hashtag, that folks organizing within that movement were prioritizing healing, were prioritizing self-care in a way that I don't think was at the forefront in past Activist movements probably a part of that that's kept me away from the notion of activism is that in some ways it has felt dehumanizing because mm-hmm. it hasn't incorporated any space for a person to be a person and to and the heal all uh, and so much that that uh, folks are learning about all the things you're talking about the structural violence generational trauma and and yes as as you said Jessica for. White people, those things are, suddenly, are coming into awareness that have been there for forever, well, for a long time, and get hidden.
2: And just to speak into that as well, that one of the things, the dimensions of this connecting back to organizations is that our normal, quote-unquote, normal organizational culture is actually set up on this colonial domination logic. And so everything from the power over to the emphasis on, um, people like using people as means to
0: other ends. So resource, all the things, the ways that we name these things.
2: Exactly. Exactly. And so this, this, what we have born into a culture and a society that is actually on a domination logic already in trauma as, as Thomas Hubel talks about. And, and so 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 much of the work is also in waking up to these things that we have just assumed and and Im- imbibed and embodied and finding the ways to heal and transform collectively i think that related to our the
3: illusion of of there being a separate self there is a a dominant cultural narrative around what individual healing is and looks like. And we we tend to think of it as we tend to think of trauma in an individual context as, and related to situational things. So for example, attachment trauma, shock trauma, but what science is starting to reinforce <laughs> the the intuitive, I think, feminine wisdom, perhaps that has maybe known this for a bit longer, but that We cannot parcel apart the trauma from the society and the culture and the relational structures which create it. And in fact, to inflict that narrative upon an individual isn't in itself a form of violence. And so we have been perpetuating this in this medical model in some ways, in, in the ways that we conduct therapy, et cetera. So I, I just want to name that the thing that differentiates Healing individual trauma versus healing collective trauma is that we understand it relationally and contextually, and there is never a separation. So it's the relationship between us as, as people. It's the relationship of us to our, our ancestors and everything that we carry with us from, from that actually in our physical bodies. The relationship to the logic and, and the ways of being and seeing that we're taught are right and wrong and the binary and the choices we're forced to make. Like, so it's, we understand that relationally, which means that in order to work in that healing space, we have to tend to something much different than an individual just going off to do self care. Um, and so what, what is communal care and how does that get done in relationship? Because it's the relationships in the first place that created the
2: harm and the relationships that fell out of Alignment with life. One thing that the narrative that individualizes racism to racist individuals is actually an, a narrative that effaces the the structural realities of how power is articulated into institutions and laws and societies and economic systems, et cetera, et cetera. And we need to change systems and power relationships and the structural dimensions of all of that as major part of the work. And so I was just, that's what I was resonating to as I was listening to you, Jenny.
0: And I think it's easy to see that, you know, in for-profit systems, uh, it's easy to see how those are set up uh, for dominance for a particular end. And it's, I think, a little, perhaps for some, a little more hidden in the nonprofit sector. But it seems to me that it's all of those logics are kind of, are definitely embedded in how sector has been built and, you know, the assumptions that even go into, you know, uh, what's taught that is good governance or, you know, how a board should work. And I'm just curious what you might see within that. It looked like Ariel was trying to jump in.
1: I kind of want to bring this back to the initial question that you were asking around navigating uncertainty and kind of the personal example that I gave, you know, around this move, like what comes up in me in embarking in something that potentially elicits a fear response that i can't control that i want to control how does that impact the way i relate to my mother or to my grandmother what am i able to hear or not hear what am i how am i able to feel my whole body and connect from my heart place to their heart place what happens to empathy or creativity or higher level brain functioning so these things that are really intimate and real and just part of everyday life as being a human being in a really complex world like these are some of the elements that build up these systems that aren't serving us and a part of that is our a story around collective trauma and a way of being that's not serving and it's also learning like how can we step into and figure out new ways from a place of choice to relate to these things. Um, and there's a conditioning and a curiosity that comes in that experience. A lot of our work as mentioned in the bio and also what um, Jenny was talking about. Communal healing is the practice of being in relationship and it's hard. (laughs) It is really hard. It's hard. It's not easy. We are not conditioned or socialized. It's not innate. So it's a seeing, a learning, a sitting with and discovering, okay, what does it mean for me to pause, sense into my body, bring awareness and notice to, whoa, I'm feeling really escalated right now. Start to settle, sit with, and start to feel like, what is my mother sensing into right now? She's about to go on this journey, and that takes time. Uh, that takes patience. That takes training. And it's not just me doing it in my own mind. It's bringing it out into reality. So, what does it look like for organizations to organize themselves in a practice such as
2: this? And I also want to pick up the thread of this dynamic on uh, with the nonprofit. Sector. One of the things that we we see is that the 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 resources again the you know the same replication of who controls the resources is disproportionately white, and and yet the populations being served are oftentimes minority, and and so there's also so there's a couple dimensions there's the the there's power there's resources and then there's also sort of a channeling into the same kind of bureaucratic organizational structures that are the same as the way you know this that those were originally created as colonial structures the bureaucracy and so when that intersects with real communities and real needs and real you know human creativity and human potential there's there can there can be a a gap a disconnect even even a taking of space from other possibilities other other ways of creating as just as human beings in community and sometimes service can mask actually looking at the root cause of what created the need in the first place what's the structural violence that created the need if that gets removed then people are actually their energy and, and their creativity and all of that, their resources are freed up to create beauty themselves. And so I think that's, that's part of the dynamic I see.
1: I mean, a question that I'm holding is in the social sector, specifically the nonprofit terrain, what are the blind spots? What are the attachments? What is being held on to so tightly and in service to what? What are people afraid of? And where did where were these systems born from? Again, how the interior condition and the intervention. So so those are some of the questions that I'm holding.
3: And, uh, and related to those, some of the questions I'm holding is, is what does it take for us to create the kinds of holding spaces and containers, so that we can even start to go there from a place of openness, how do we actually help each other help bring that out of each other because it's we need each other to do that work because we're so conditioned and and this is this going back to this habitual ways of protection, you know, putting up the armor, going back to scarcity kinds of narratives that justify. Like, for example, I need to look out for my own interest in this because I need to take care of my family, yada, yada, yada. And so what is the invitation? What is the access point? what are the what are the doorways to invite people into these kinds of spaces? Even what do we call them? You know, because even calling them healing spaces or even calling them, even you know, even inviting people into circle practice feels like somehow it's not supposed to be in in organizations in these traditional kind of spaces, right? And like why? Because we have pulled apart the professional, and the human, <laughs> the, the natural human ways—you know, these ways of organizing ourselves and being together in a circle that has existed for so many generations before us. So, what are the access points? What are the relationships that make those access points possible?
2: What are the conversations? Yeah, Carol, I'm—I'm I'm curious. You've been, because you've been working in this space so long, and you've seen so much. And I'm wondering, what is it that you see that you'd like to share in?
0: Well, I think one one thing that you said where, you know, it's like service can come, sometimes hide the root cause. I think that's true. And I think people get caught up in an argument about which is more important. And I think the people who are being served who have needs at that very moment need that. And people need to be working on the system to you know, to change it. And I think what's even more exciting in this time, I think there's been a lot of work on tinkering with the system. What I feel like there's, there could be, there's like an opening to is imagining something new and different. I don't know what that's going to be, but it feels like that's more possible now than it was even six months ago.
2: Beautiful. Absolutely. The freeing of our imaginations as a really important invitation and act in this time. Yeah. Thank you, Carol.
0: And at the same time to say, you know, to talk about what Ariel was talking about of how, when you're gripped by fear and so much, you know, people, most people's first reaction to uncertainty is fear. You know, lots of talk about anxiety and how all of that's raised and how we know, you know, in our brain that just kind of shuts down our creative processes. So it's, it's, you know, both are there. So in, in working within organizations and within the sector, as much as we know that it, it needs to shift and change, you know, one of the things that that has been kind of a driver for me is looking at if we give if we give organizations the benefit of the doubt, we say, okay, they were they were built to to, you know, move some mission forward that's going to have a positive impact. In the world. And yet, why is it so hard for those organizations to have that mission, have that great aspirational thing that they want to see out there, and yet aren't really living that internally? And certainly, this is really coming home. And and you know getting stuck in kind of doing the th- same thing over and over again, and you know I think that's very much being brought home right now with the with the Black Lives Matter protests, where you know many organizations have made um, statements about support of the movement. Report after report has come out about the leadership of the nonprofit sector being so decidedly white, and and those organizations also making statements and yet being dominated by by white people, and and certainly you know, the larger the budget, the larger the salaries, more, more likely to be white men at the top. So I'm curious, any thoughts about kind of that stuckness that, that seems to be not just at, at the organizational level, but at the, at the sector level, and then of course at the societal level. I'm noticing
1: that I keep on bringing it back to the personal today, which I think is really fascinating. I think it is easy and safe to be able to point the finger to the world outside of myself. It is easier. It is safer. I get to preserve a degree of separation, reinforcing the same systems we are swimming in. I get to make something an object and not feel connected to it, to sever myself from it. And then there's this sense of righteousness or like reinforcing like what is right, what is wrong. Again, all the ingredients that we've been talking about in in these systems that are not serving us. And so like look one inside oneself to reflect, to see wholly and fully takes courage. It takes an openness an awareness, and awareness and a vulnerability. And there's real reasons why I've seen in myself or organizations resist doing that. And it to me, it always starts with home, right? It starts with my home, my body, my home, and then the relationships. What does it take to do that? And then and then aligning ideology or what I'm saying into practice and behavior. What does that actually take?
0: Yeah, and I I appreciate what you say what you're saying about how easy it is to get into that kind of systemic analysis and have it be an other out there that has nothing to do with me.
3: And what what's coming up for me also is this is why tending to growing different kinds of skill sets in ourselves together is so important because we can't just say these things and expect ourselves and others to step into this work together. It takes practice. It takes a lot of practice and we don't have the practice grounds. You know, I'm a golfer and you don't just go out on the course and play. You go to the driving range and you go to the putting green and you hit hundreds and thousands of shots. You know, and then you get on the course and every single shot is different because you have a different line and you have a different angle of attack and you have different, you know, a different plane that you're trying to hit the ball from and a different piece of grass. And I believe we need to, and this is part of the work that we're doing together, is create the practice fields that are safe enough, not comfortable, if this work is not comfortable, but safe enough. Like the reality of safety is there for us to challenge each other in these ways and really like start to use embodied practices so that we can access the wisdom in ourselves and the wisdom of the collective social body because it is there, but it is frozen, and that's what that's what trauma does is it keeps it keeps intelligence frozen in our system, and so. I, you know, that's part of why the healing is so important, but I think that's also part of why the, the practice, the focus on practice and what we practice. So some of the things we practice, you know, a lot of it has to do with practices that allow us to be in. Structures of sharing power, even just in one room for one hour, even to practice that is hard, right? Because we're so used to somebody facilitating the meeting, and somebody just deciding the agenda, and somebody telling us what's important to talk about. And these are all conditioned ways of thinking that systems of oppression rely on in order to feed themselves in order to sustain themselves. So what are the practice spaces we're building together where we practice being encouraged where we practice accessing the courage from community building power accessing it and building it where are the communities and the spaces or the the sacred spaces we're creating even within our own organizations even if they're even if it's a momentary right where we can practice doing that and what we practice we become eventually but it takes a long time but we have to start with the practice and it feels like um that's something that because of our because we were are so conditioned to focus on the outcome, it's hard to prioritize being
2: in the practice
3: for practice sake.
2: So I also very much resonate with what both Ariel and Jenny shared and and that and the integration through practice of individual and collective work. And and I have noticed also how in in many groups that I have been in, I teach some in the classroom, especially I noticed this, that we have collectively lost the ability to shift from hierarchical to these these participatory collaborative relationships that Jenny was talking about. And so the practicing those in those little component parts is is where the, the big, you do that the little pieces and the big change happens. And also noticing the ways in which, like Ariel was saying about the individual, we are part of these systems and so these systems are in us and we are in the systems and so we can then that that provides an access point also for doing the work because as we do the work inside it's also doing the work on these on on these ways of being and seeing and doing and creating and especially as we open that up to doing that collectively
0: we'll be back after this quick break mission impact is sponsored by grace social sector consulting Grace Social Sector Consulting helps nonprofits and associations become more strategic and innovative for greater mission impact. Download free resources on strategic planning, program portfolio review, design thinking, and more at gracesocialsector.com slash resources. We're back on Mission Impact. Well, I'm very much enjoying this conversation and would love to ask 16 follow-up questions, but I'm going to shift gears for a minute. And there's one thing I like to do at the end of each episode and just ask a couple fun questions. So I've got one for each of you. Jessica, what is a mistake that people often make about you?
2: I think sometimes people think I'm sweet (laughs) (laughs) and I'm not so sweet. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot in there.
0: <laughs> and uh, Jenny, what are you most looking forward to in the next 10 years?
3: So noticing my resistance to the question, let me just give myself a second <laughs> to see what might come up here. I think what I'm most looking forward to is seeing and being in what unfolds in my life and in, in my relationships and in, in in the life all around me, the more I choose to let go of trying to control it. Like I'm, I'm very looking, for, I'm looking forward to that process as uncomfortable as it is to seeing what life has in store.
0: And Ariel, what chance encounter changed your life forever? You're
1: looking at it right here. <laughs> <laughs> that was an easy one. <laughs> Truly meeting these special humans and sensing into what we are co-creating together.
0: So what is next for you guys? What, what, are you, uh, what are you stepping into? What's emerging?
2: I think that that opens up this fascinating question of this interplay of emergence shading into planning. And like so far, we have been way more on the emergence end and things have shown up in our field as the work we're meant to do. And we've responded to that. We are also starting to craft intentions around how we invite collaboration and connection and the serendipity of the emergence is really how life shows up knocking on our door ask you know telling us where we're meant to, to step in
0: So if someone did want to invite you into something how would they get in touch with you how could they find you You can find all of us on LinkedIn and in addition to that
3: we' are in the process of building a, a website that we are envisioning as an invitation <laughs> to discover, our shared work with other others wherever they may be. And so we are putting our our hearts (laughs) into sort of the process of how can that website, you know, not just be. Really a reflection of the very things that we're trying not to reproduce, but instead a real invitation, a real invitation to be in relationship to blur the lines between partners and clients and stewards and how we how we are in relationship with one another in traditional business context. We're in a lot of inquiry around this together. And so we're we're using our website as a way to challenge ourselves to find language. It's not perfect, but at least a starting point for how we can offer that invitation, sort of a a channel through which we can engage with others in more broad ways.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate all your wisdom that you bring and the work that you guys are doing. And we'll be excited to see how this practice uh, continues to emerge and good luck with everything as you move forward. Thank you for listening to this episode. You can find the links and resources mentioned during the show in the show notes at missionimpactpodcast.com slash show notes. That's missionimpactpodcast, all one word, dot com slash show notes. We want to hear from you. Take a minute to give us some feedback or ask a question at missionimpactpodcast.com slash feedback. Thanks and see you next time.